0: And now I want to welcome uh, to the pulpit Pastor Blake Johnson, who will lead us in uh, prayer and the reading of scripture, as well as the preaching of God's word. So please give him your full attention as he brings us God's word. Let's go to our God together in prayer and ask his protection, his mercy, his blessing on us as we come before his word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we we now thank you and are eager to worship you. By bowing humbly before your word, which is precious to us, which is food for us. Thank you for it, Father. Make us hungry for what you have brought us here to receive from your hand tonight. And I pray that you would bless it to our nourishment. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'll ask you all to be opening with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. In just a moment, we'll read the passage together. Romans 9, and you can find verse 6. There are some contexts where when you ask everyone to open to Romans chapter 9 a murmur, goes through the congregation. I'm thankful that that's not the case for us here. Uh, After last summer, we resumed these our joint services in October and are holding them once a quarter. And we decided at that point to do something uh, with our uh, preaching series as we go through. We decided to use these times to study God's word together in a particularly intentional way. What I mean is we decided to preach not on individual passages disconnected from each other, but to make the messages serve a joint purpose together. And so what we began doing back in October is using these sermons to go through the five tenets of a Reformed understanding of salvation. This is the Amarillo Reformed Fellowship. Uh, Five tenets then of, you could say, Reformed soteriology, Reformed Doctrine of Salvation. Historically, these are known affectionately as TULIP. They apparently were much better than we are at coming up with acronyms that are beautiful to the ear. TULIP is attractive in a way maybe that some would say ARF is not. (laughs) But we began that in October, and this evening we'll consider the biblical doctrine of unconditional election. And there are probably countless ways that we could do that. But this evening, we'll do it by moving our way through Romans chapter 9, verses 6 to 18. So we'll begin by reading this together. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Can I ask you, if you're able, please stand with me for the public reading of Scripture. We read this beginning in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather, Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. We begin that reading in verse 6 of this chapter in the setup to these verses. The first five verses of the chapter, Paul had been lamenting the fact that so many of his Jewish brothers stand accursed because they have rejected their savior. They have rejected the Christ. And in verses four and five, he mentions the blessings of Jewish pedigree. We could describe it that way. And he uses that to explain and to move into now this explanation of the nature of God's good promises to his people. This is what we're going to see him do as we move through our text this evening. He's going to say much to us about the blessings of election in general. However, he is going to say some things that get much more specific even than that, even in the realm of election. We'll approach the passage here through two main headings this evening. And they could be put in the form of questions. Uh, The first we'll see verses 6 to 13 The question will be this, to whom does God grant his promises? To whom does he grant them? Verses 6 to 13. The second question we'll see dealt with in verses 11 to 18. So you'll notice there's an overlap there. He will move his way into the second question. The first question is, to whom does God grant his promises? The second question is, why? Why does he work this way? We begin in verse 6 with this first question, to whom does God grant his promises? And we're thinking of verses 6 to 13. If you go underneath that and you look among those verses, we could say that he's doing this in verses 6 to 13. He is giving first a brief and comprehensive answer to the question in verses 6 to 8. He's going to comprehensively answer the question in brief. And then he's going to give two examples. That's what we see him doing here. So the the brief answer followed by the example of Isaac in verse 9 and the example of Jacob in verses 10 to 13. Let's see first the direct answer in itself. Let me read again verses 6 to 8. Look with me there. But it is not as though the word of God has failed for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, quote, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. The word of God has not failed here, Paul writes, because salvation was not promised on the basis of physical descent. And he words this in a way that creates something of a parallelism for us. It makes it very helpful. It's phrased twice. He says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And then he says it this way, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. The way he's done that is helpful for us on a number of levels. It helps us in understanding what he's actually speaking to. That's one of the one of the base things that it does here. For us, Because, for example, if he's trying to speak, you could say, if he's trying to speak literally, technically, then, of course, what he's just said is factually wrong, isn't it? Technically speaking, all who are offspring of Abraham are his children, aren't they? I mean, that's just that's obvious to us, which means that that's not what he's trying to say here. What he is speaking of here is he's speaking of heirs. He's speaking of the granting of status, the granting of benefits that are associated with sonship. It's exactly what he concludes in verse eight. Do you see it there? I love when Paul begins a statement with the words this means He just Stops and clarifies for us. He does this a lot. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. You should take note of that last uh, description counted as offspring. We do not find the promise of salvation coming on the basis of physical descent, not of descent from Israel. But even before that, not on the basis of descent from Abraham in and of itself. Rather, it has come, he says, by being counted as offspring. Verse eight or verse seven, by being named as offspring, being named his offspring. There was Isaac and there was Ishmael. But only those whom God names as Abraham's offspring will be his offspring. In this meaningful way. And God stated that he was going to name those benefiting promise inheriting ones through the line of Isaac. And not through the line of Ishmael. So Ishmael can have all the kids that he wants. And they can all call Abraham grandpa. All they want. But they will not receive the promises God made to Abraham and to his seed. So Paul's stated answer here is just that God grants his promises to those whom he names, to those that he counts as offspring of Abraham. And what he proceeds to do then is to point to two examples of this having happened in their own history. The first one is quick, and so we'll look at it quickly. The second one is not quick. The second one is big in what we're seeing here this evening. But the first we see in verse 9, look there again. The first example is Isaac. We read this in verse 9. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Now what's emphasized there is that that was a reality that came about by virtue of a divine promise. Ishmael came about by human ingenuity and action, but not Isaac. And how much is that reality about Isaac emphasized in the scope of Scripture? How often is it brought up? The God-ordained, sovereign, miraculous story of Isaac. We could spend a long time there. But I'll just bring up Genesis chapter 17 the promise of Genesis 17:7 7, it says there was to Abraham and to his seed we find that in Genesis 17:7 7, 8 verses underneath that beginning in verse 15 this is the exchange that we read just listen to this again God said to Abraham as for Sarai your wife you shall not call her name Sarai but Sarah shall be her name I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. You, Abraham, and your seed, I give you these promises. But not just any of your seed that you might want. No, through the seed that I declare. Directly, Isaac. Directly, but not ultimately, right? ultimately Jesus of Nazareth this is exactly what Paul points out in Galatians 3:16 about this when he says now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring it does not say and to offsprings referring to many but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ Paul makes that connection abundantly clear to us in terms of what is being aimed toward here But directly, the promise is given to Isaac and not to Ishmael. So the first example of what he's just demonstrated in 6 to 8 is Isaac. In his case, he wasn't even conceived apart from promise. But even that served as a pattern here for us. The pattern that we should be seeing is that any in mankind who were going to experience God's blessing and gift were going to do so as recipients of. Of promises. The second example does this as well, but it gets even more explicit and more detailed in terms of what it is making clear about God's purposes in election. Look at verse 10. He continues with the second example. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. I want to suggest to you that we can best get at his point here if we work our way backwards through these verses. And as we do that, we're going to be slowly shifting into the second question this evening. The why question. The second example of what Paul has been describing specifically comes in verses 12 and 13 at the end there. She was told the older will serve the younger as it is written, Jacob I loved but Esau I hated. The older will serve the younger in the way that a servant in the house will serve the true son of Of the house. The status. uh, The status as heir and inheritor. This is what sets the son apart. Verse 13 continues to make that point. Again, pointing to Malachi chapter uh, chapter 1. Notice verse 13. It says, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. He's quoting back to the prophet Malachi. And the connection between 12 and 13 here, I think, helps us to understand what is meant in verse 13 by love and hate. To be loved by God here is to be chosen by God. Although he was younger, I chose Jacob over Esau. This knowing of him, this this passing on of the promise by his line was due to God's naming of him, God's choosing of him. You can see how Jacob and Esau exemplify the point that verses six to eight was making that the line of receiving God's blessed promise is going to hang on the matter of who God will name as his offspring. Who God is going to count as his offspring. This we already saw in the first example, we see it again there, but I told you that the second example goes even deeper than this. Let's keep moving in reverse through verses 10 to 13. Look again now at verses 10 and 11. What these verses do is they give us a number of stated equalities between Jacob and Esau. What are the things that they had in common from these verses? Well, verse 10, they had the same parents. Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. So now the reality that was there in the first example of two different mothers with Isaac and Ishmael, that's not even in the picture now. These ones have the same parents. Verse 11. What else did they have in common at the point of this declared choosing by God? You see the two things there? They were not yet born. Neither of them were born. Second, thus... They had not yet done anything, good or bad. I mean, Paul makes that point explicitly here. And it's here that we arrive most directly at the clarification, the one that Scripture is trying to give us, the one that the reformers were pointing to and declaring as they clarified this doctrine of unconditional election. It's more than simply the reality that God has chosen his people it gets to the question of why he has chosen them. This declaration that we see here by God, that he chose before they had done anything at all, it serves the purpose of the second half of verse 11. Look with me carefully. At 11b, I'll call it 11b. It starts with, in order that. Do you see where I'm jumping in? In order that, God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. The ESV does something very helpful here. It sets that off with dashes. Some of yours, if you don't have the ESV, you might have parentheses there. They they did that on purpose, and it's a very helpful thing for them to have done here. Let me read verses 11 and 12 with that part taken out. It would go like this. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, she was told the older will serve the younger. Do you hear how that is a complete idea? All on its own. Verse 12 finishes the sentence that was started in verse 11. But this part, part 11b, actually comes in and gives us the divine purpose in God working that way. It was done this way, he says, in order that something would continue. A far better way to say that, if I dare to suggest it, is to to say this was done in order that something would stand. I looked at seven different English translations here. The ESV is the only one that didn't use the word stand here. They used the word continue. John Stott makes a helpful point that this word Minnow is the word. This is the verb for them that was the opposite of the verb that we find in verse 6. Remember that verse 6, if you look back up there, that's what created this whole occasion to speak on this subject in the first place. Paul said there, it is not as though the word of God has what? Has failed. It's not as though the word of God has failed. And Paul tells us here, in fact, what is what God has done? He has done so that something would not fail, but something would stand. Now, what is it that stands? Because God has worked this way. Verse 11 says, in order that God's purpose of election might stand. What they do in his day in their language is that they front load in their sentences, words or phrases in order to emphasize them. And that happens here with the phrase, according to election. The purpose being described is God's. Here's how Paul writes it. God's according to election purpose. That purpose. God's according to election purpose. In order that God's according to election purpose would stand. God has chosen the Lord Jesus Christ, Abraham's true seed, to inherit the promise And he has given Christ a people, a chosen people out of every tongue, tribe and nation to be joint heirs with him. And not only does that not signify a failure of God's word, but in fact, the very purpose God has acted with all along, even demonstrated in Israel's own history, that his purpose in redemptive history is an according to election purpose. Isn't that what these examples have made clear? Not only has his word not failed, but it is in fact upheld. It stands as a result of God working this way with his people. This is a God who will not share his glory with another. This is a God who has acted to create in order to display his power, his goodness and his sovereignty. And he has saved By sovereign choice, so that his divine purpose would be shown to stand. And notice the last piece of verse 11. When the divine purpose comes about, it comes about, quote, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Now, that is interesting to me, that that dichotomy that he gives there. (coughs) Maybe you're like me. Normally, when we hear not because of works, but. We might expect the opposite that's about to come to be faith. But that's not the idea that he's giving us here. The opposite here of something happening because of works is something happening because of him who calls. That's the opposite. God's purposes are not in place because of human works. The only explanation for God's purposes is God. His pleasure, his purposes, his calling. And such is God's priority that his calling would be understood to be owed only to his divine will. Such is his priority in that. That he goes out of his way to emphasize in these examples that in these cases, it was made before any human action at all. Even before birth. This divine appointment is the determining factor for our salvation. It is, to put it another way, the only hope we have. That God would freely choose to have mercy upon me. Thus, you can have the great number of statements in the New Testament to that effect. Thus, you can have Acts 13, 48, for example. If you'd like to flip there, I'll just read this one verse so you can just listen. Thus you can have such a thing be said in the scriptures. Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Notice that here among the Gentiles, there's a general rejoicing and glorifying God's word. But in terms of salvation coming to sinners... What we have here is a very intentionally worded statement. Can you tell? As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now we're very clearly in the why portion of our consideration this evening, aren't we? And coming into verse 14, we find another reason given. The point is made that we're talking about God's divine right here. It is his divine right to do this. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. The potential objection of injustice is presented here and is quickly rejected. Is there injustice on God's part here? By no means. Paul says in verse 15 he gives us another Old Testament reminder Uh, he's not going to Isaac or Jacob this time he goes to Moses and the reminder that we're given is that in this conversation as we think about these things as we think about God's giving of this promise of this blessing the reminder is that what we are talking about there is we're talking about mercy we're talking about mercy That is so helpful for him to say here, because it reminds us that when we talk about salvation, we are not talking about the granting or withholding of some sort of a human right. We are talking about a sinful, rebellious race of creatures. And thus we're talking about something that is not owed. Something that is not owed. One of my favorite uh, examples of this or, or uh, descriptions comes from R.C. Sproul. Some of you may have heard him recount the events in the classroom at one point in his past. Uh, that, that he sat down, uh, began class one semester with 250 students. And I think he said it was an Old Testament class. And went carefully through the syllabus, which made clear there are going to be a series of papers due this semester. They're due on September 30th, October 30th, November 30th. And that's when they're due. If you come to class on September 30th and you don't have your paper with you, you fail. You get an F. Does everyone understand? Yes. Signatures? Yes. We begin the semester. September 30th comes. And 200 of the 250 come with paper in hand. 50 do not. And there is much fear and trembling. And if you've heard R.C. Sproul talk before, you can, you can uh, channel R.C. Sproul in his voice about how he describes these accounts. Right? He asks them, Where are your papers? Oh, Dr. Sproul, we don't have them. Please have mercy on us. Give us a few days. We're freshmen. We're just, we didn't make the transition to college well from high school. Please have mercy on us. And he grants them three more days to finish their papers. October 30th comes. The second paper is due. And even more students arrive without their paper prepared. And the same thing happens again. Question of them. Some trembling, but also a little bit less that time. He grants them three days. The third paper comes due, and a large number of students do not have it ready. And their answer to him is, don't worry, prof. We'll have it ready for you in a few days. And so he takes this pin out in his little black book, and he says, and he starts in that account, he starts listing off names. Where's your paper? I don't have it. F. Where's your paper? I don't have it. F. And in the course of that account, he says, at some point in there, a voice rang out in the room. Someone objected. That's not fair. And he found the origin of that voice. It was an individual who had not had their second paper ready back in October. And he says, it's justice that you want. Yes. He says, okay, I'll tell you what. I, I can recall that I... I gave you three extra days on your second paper. I'm going to go in and change that grade to an F. And there was a gasp in the room. And you can tell what he's using this story to recount. He said that he stopped and, and brought this to their attention as well. That we can get very confused. But when we're talking about mercy, we are not talking about something that we are owed. This is Paul's point in this passage. This is why he would go to uh, Moses, to God's statement here to, to Moses. Because he makes this point clear. When we are talking about God's purposes in salvation of sinners, it's the same. We're talking about mercy. Quoting God's words, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, is something of a helpful splash of cold water in our face. But I think there's something else here, too. What that account, what, what Stroll mentions in that uh, account about mercy being unowed, is certainly true. However, I can think of one exception to that. It would be owed if God had said in the past that he was going to act that way. If he in the past, if he had given us a comprehensive guarantee of mercy. If he had promised universal mercy upon sinners, then there would be an outcry if all did not receive it or were not offered it. There could be that outcry. What we find here in the scriptures is that from the beginning, God has never done such a thing. Two chapters into this book, two chapters into the book of Genesis, the thing we find is a promise. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And yet mercy is given in that man continues a physical existence. In Exodus 33, we find what Paul quoted just now in verse 15 here. And it is no promise of mercy, is it? God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Mercy is not owed and it has never been promised. So then, verse 16 Concludes. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Literally, he uses participles here. He writes of two types of persons there's one who wills, a willer, and one who runs, a runner. This merciful salvation does not depend on the one who wills. The sinner may desperately will that god show mercy but that sinner cannot bring it about it does not depend on the one who runs not only are his desires powerless in this his actions are as well in our church uh, we're working through the gospel of john right now and he made this very point in john 1:13 when he wrote that children of god are born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. This merciful salvation, it does not, it cannot depend on any aspect of the creature. It depends instead, he says, on God. And actually, it's a third participle here. Not just two persons in this picture. There's a third person. It does not depend on the willer or on the runner, but on God, the mercy shower. That's the one it depends on. Leon Morris sums this up very well after reflecting on the lexical definition of this word run. It depends not on the one who runs. He says that that word speaks of exerting oneself to the limit of one's powers in an attempt to go forward. And here's what Morris writes. He says, Paul is saying that all human effort leaves us in condemnation. We cannot clear ourselves of sin. If we are saved, it is because God chooses to show mercy on us. Do you sense how crystal clear this is in light of the biblical picture of the helplessness of sinful humanity? And maybe more importantly tonight, can you see how impossible must be the alternative to this? The alternative to thinking and understanding God's purposes in salvation through the lens of unconditional election. The alternative to this is the concept that God elects his people by looking forward in time and finding some of us who wind up choosing to trust him. Prior to an experience of his love, his grace, we find the gospel message persuasive and lovely and we trust him. He sees that, and he chooses us on the basis of that. If we're thinking of that hypothetical action that I might take, that God might see, I would call that a sight of my doing something good. Not sure what else you would call it. But it's strange, then, the example that God gave in verse 11 was of the intentional choice of a man, quote, who had not done anything good or bad. No, what we find instead is a God who saves, not as a reward for our goodness, but as a display of his. He saves not as a reward for our goodness, but as a display of his goodness. Look at verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Without a doubt, this does put God's power on display. This is the cause for trembling. And yet, interestingly, at the same time, it is a cause for peace that surpasses all understanding. Because who is this one? whose mere pleasure is the cause of our election in Christ Jesus. He is the one whose name is called the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. This is his name. It is apparently a common reaction to hear teaching on this subject and to come away struggling with the question, how can I know if I am among the elect? If this is true, if God's election of his people is unconditional, based purely on his mere pleasure, how can I know if I'm among the elect? I always respond to people when I'm asked that question by pointing out that God has never once asked you to determine if you are among the elect. You have never been charged to find a way to peer into the will of God in that way and make some determination about his eternal election. He has not charged you to do that. What he has told you to do is to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has attached promises to You will be saved. He has told you to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. See, when we think about the things that God's word is holding up to us this evening, we are exploring the deep things of God with this subject, which we ought to do in order to walk humbly and gratefully before him. But God has not revealed this to us to throw us into hopeless uncertainty and fear. His commands and his promises are crystal clear to us in his word. I would end this evening with two encouragements to offer you tonight. We can think of them like this. There are two steps of obedience that ought to be made following our meditation on this truth. The first step is this. As I apply this reality to myself, the step of obedience could be Visualized as choosing as an act of the will choosing to breathe a great sigh of relief as a result of what God's word has said here. If this creates a response in us other than that of relief, then we have misunderstood its implications. This doctrine clarifies for us that every Christian has been rescued and forgiven in spite of their sin, not because of their goodness. Every Christian draws their confidence not from their deeds of righteousness, but from God's kind, merciful choice, which is made as a testimony to his grace and not to anything good in us. Think of what this does for us. It takes the spotlight off of us and puts it squarely on the according to election purposes of God. That swing of the spotlight is a thing of great relief to the child of God. So this first step of obedience would be to consciously choose to respond to this passage with the breath of a sigh of relief and gratitude. The second step in this then would be to consciously double down. You notice that each of these are an act of the will. They're a decision that we must make regarding our thought life. Regarding how we are going to think about God and about reality, we must choose to consciously double down on the notion that our Heavenly Father is trustworthy. If in the first step of obedience I'm applying this doctrine to myself, perhaps in the second step of obedience I'm applying it to the people that I love, the people that I care about. This may regard our thoughts and emotions as we consider our children as we consider our friends and family members who don't yet know the Lord. This is perhaps the issue that most effectively forces me to reckon with the question. Do I really find God trustworthy? We have said that salvation is in his hands. Am I glad that this is the case? Maybe a more pointed way to ask this is to ask, Where else would I rather it be? My friends, there is nowhere else we would rather it be. In verse 16 of our text, in the realm of fallen humanity, there are those who will and there are those who run. But then there is God. And it is he that we look to for mercy. Praise be to our God for His sovereign, merciful grace. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are indeed grateful. We're humbled and we're grateful. It is good of You to remind us and to remind us often that we are creatures. You are God. We confess freely And joyfully tonight that everything about our salvation, our salvation from beginning to end, Lord, is due to your kindness, to your sovereign, according to election purposes. And Lord, we pray tonight that you would accomplish these purposes. We pray that you would put yourself on display in the lives of of us, of, of your children here in this room, in the ways specifically tonight, in the ways that we trust you.